You are tuned into the State of Cannabis News Hour, where industry leaders, regulators, and lovers of cannabis gather collectively to move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Professionals and cannabis curious alike can tune in to hear leading cannabis experts share and discuss headlines, critical industry issues, social topics, and more. And welcome to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we bring you all the top stories you need to know and talk about them for four minutes and 20 seconds. We are a group of experts in different cannabis spaces with a wide diversity of perspectives and life experiences. Our news is bite-sized and infused with a nice mix of facts, opinions, and a pinch of humor. It's Wednesday, June 22nd, 2022. This is episode number 306. I'm Susan Sorries, the founder and producer of the State of Cannabis News Hour, author of the book What's Growing in Grandma's Garden, and Cannabis' Favorite Grandma, aka Nanogram. If you're listening to the podcast, this show is live every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific on Clubhouse. Spark it up with us and over 31,000 State of Cannabis News Hour members if you want to be an audience participant. And please support our show by subscribing and leaving us a review. Today, we're talking about state protections not included in the Justice Department's funding bill, the Golden State Warriors cannabis goodie bag, New York to spend $200 million on real estate for social equity applicants, a study on cannabis as an opioid replacement, a medical cannabis scheme in Oklahoma, Kentucky has its first cannabis advisory committee meeting, and many other frosty nuggets, so stay tuned tuned for the full 60 minutes of the State of Cannabis News Hour. The following program contains coarse language and nudity. Viewer discretion is advised. Audience, feel free to raise your hands if you want to weigh in on a headline after it's been read, and we'll try to bring you up to the stage. Keep it brief and relevant, or you might get the gong. Kicking off the show today is Rico Lamite. He likes to ask the tough questions that the mainstream media refuses to ask. The self-proclaimed dopest dad alive is here to encourage other dope dads. Find him on TEDx or at one of his Cannavision events, but always find him here every weekday as co-producer of the State of Cannabis News Hour. What's your headline today, Rico? Ooh, I got a little background music too. Dig it. No. I'm trying to fade it out. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> My story's coming from Forbes by Chris Roberts. Smoke like a champion. Here's what was inside the Golden State Warriors cannabis goodie bag. To the victor goes the spoils. The Golden State Warriors just won their fourth NBA championship in eight seasons Monday. And the upcoming weeks are sure to be filled with lots of heavily scrutinized adjustments to the team, leaving NBA fans waiting on bated breath to see if the dubs can continue their dominance or blow it, allowing another squad to take seat on the league throne. But before all of that, it's turn-up time. Each warrior that stopped by the locker at the Chase Center Monday before boarding uh, the drop-top parade buses for their obligatory fan-facing victory cruise down Market Street was met with a bag full of locally sourced happiness in the form of a Sunset Connect goodie bag. The, Fran- the San Francisco-based equity brand provided each player with a gift bag stuffed with pre-rolls, topical bombs, and other infused products, according to CEO uh, Ali Hamalian who provided uh, video evidence uh, for all the haters via Instagram, because we all know if it ain't on tape, it don't count. In the video, he he can be heard saying, true to our roots, we worked the local angles to get our champions a goodie bag. 
we wanted the team to go on vacation with some real city fire, and apparently they really liked it. I mean, running through the list of goodie bag contents, I see no reason for any of the champs to not like what they saw. Of course, it was the Fulton Fiver uh, being the star of the show, which is Sunset Connect's signature one gram pre-roll, named after the city bus line running from the Bay to the Pacific Ocean. The joint features special uh, championship edition custom packaging remixed in the Warriors colors. In addition to the Fiverr, included in the bag was a one, one and a half gram pre-roll of Legends 002 Black Sea, um, an eighth of Legends 00 Black Sea Madrina Flower, one pack Sunset Connect 10 milligram sour apple and pineapple gummies, one pack a Sunset Connects hash-infused dog walkers, mini joints, one pack of non-hash-infused apples and bananas, mini joints, one bottle of recovery gel intended for athletes, designed by celebrity fan, uh, San Fran strength and conditioning coach John Murray, and one size-appropriate Sunset Connect tall tea. Oh, yeah, and a temple ball of hash. Cannabis uh, remains on the NBA's banned substance list, but random testing has been suspended since 2020. A bubble season where an abbreviated schedule was closed off to outsiders and played out at Disney World in Florida at the height of the pandemic. Roberts noted at the end of the piece, Axios reported only 18 percent of the 122 teams in U.S. and Canada's big four sports leagues, that's the NFL, Major League Baseball, NHL and NBA, play in states where neither adult use nor medical cannabis is legal. So while we can smile at this unique championship celebration being very California-centric, I think it'd be naive to think going forward this will be anything but the norm for more teams across the nation being targeted for easy promo by local operators. I really love the fact that a social equity shop was the first to do uh, do it on this level and got the press for it because it could have easily been done by one of San Francisco's many high-end bougie dispensaries. Well done, Ali. Any negative blowback on the video or the entire initiative is coming from haters and or trolls who just wish that they did it first. This is Rico Lamit, dopest dad on the street for the State of Cannabis News Hour. I'd love to hear what everybody else thinks about this story and cannabis goodie bags as gifts for local sports champions. Sounds like there was more than an ounce of weed in those bags. I mean, um, why are you mad, though? I'm not mad. I just, it's like, you know, I, I couldn't do that. You couldn't do that. How did they do that? Secret Boston fan. Okay. <laughs> Susan loves Boston. She's a, uh, she's a hater of the local squad. She likes the Boston Celtics. Sounds like it. Sounds like it. Nobody else want to comment on this one? <laughs> basketball getting in the mood getting in the mood yeah well let's keep it moving he's a private jet hopping longest continuously running uh, um, operating retailer in the industry with an affinity for the best weed in the world and identification and eradication of booth worldwide you can catch him in WeHo as the president of cannabis tourism or downtown LA making deals at Green Street but you will not find him on Truth Social taking notes from Gavin Newsom's what do you call them? Truths? What do you call them? Tweets? Truths. <laughs> truths. Whatever it is. Truths. Jason Beck, what you got for us today, my man? We call them truths, Rico. It's like, it's like uh, you've seen my cousin Vinny, like the youth. You know what Ooh, I'm saying? Truths. I like it. Yeah, truths. Yeah. But nonetheless, my story comes out of Texas today. That's right. The Lone Star State, where Houston has opened its first medical cannabis in-person store near Heights. Houston Medical Cannabis users now have a convenient brick-and-mortar option 
Texas Original. The state's largest and leading medical cannabis provider has opened a new storefront near the Heights, 1714 Houston Avenue, marking the first operation of its kind in the city. Catering to existing and new patients, the new 1,776-square-foot facility will offer a maraud of medical cannabis products, even though in Texas there's not a lot of cannabis products to even be offered in the first place. But nonetheless, such as gummies, tinctures, and lozenges, this new pickup location creates ease and consistency for patients who have otherwise had to settle for mail or other delivery options. Not to mention just going to their gas station and getting a fucking Delta 8 cartridge. The Austin-based company caters to a wide and diverse clientele. Texas Original CEO Morris Denton tells Culture Map, We don't have an average user, he notes. One of our youngest patients is just two months old, and one of our oldest is 98 years old. We serve veterans, cancer survivors, parents helping their children manage epilepsy, and so many more. The Texas Original currently serves approximately 80% of medical cannabis users in the state. Denton notes, For a host of issues, medical cannabis is a proven, effective method of treatment, qualifying conditions with symptoms such as insomnia, anxiety, or chronic pain, he adds. Those interested can learn more about treatment qualifications, and uh, the company is evaluating other Texas markets for potential pickup locations. As, uh, As it finalizes a new cultivation, processing, and dispensing facility in Bastrop, Texas, set to open later this year, Per a press release and opening this location not only expands access for our thousands of existing patients in the Houston area, says Denton, but it gives thousands more the opportunity to learn about and benefit from the power of medical cannabis. Our team is dedicated to serving every qualifying patient throughout the state and showing Houstonians how medical cannabis can be an effective method to relieve symptoms associated with cancer, PTSD, epilepsy, and the hundreds of other qualifying conditions under the Compassionate Use Program in Texas. Well, Houstonians, you're definitely going to get possibly a little bit more stoned, even though I'm pretty sure all the products are boof. But nonetheless, this is Jason Beck reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Shout out to H-Town. I hope everybody really getting their medicine down there. I'd love to hear uh, from Stone Slate if he's in the house today, see if he has anything to say about Texas and their path to legalization or anybody else. From H Town, yeah, no, no H Town comments. I mean, H Town is popping for real, though. That's where they swing and they swing. Candy paint is always dripping. Let's keep it moving, Jason. All right, well, coming up next to the stage, it's a pot loving PhD and champion of common sense cannabis policy, a real life alternative activist remaining optimistic in the midst of the cannabis chaos. Coming next to the stage, it's none other than Menica. Good morning. Thank you, Jason. Today I'm covering a story by T.G. Brandfault about a licensing scheme in Oklahoma. The headline reads, Two Oklahoma Attorneys Charged with Ghost Owner Medical Cannabis Scheme. And this was published by Gondrepreneur. In Oklahoma, two attorneys have allegedly used their legal assistance in a scheme to help out-of-state clients get around residency requirements. According to documents obtained by the Oklahoman, Legal assistants working for the attorneys were lending their names as ghost owners in exchange for financial compensation. The Oklahoma Bureau of of Narcotics, OBN, investigators said that they've interviewed four employees of the Jones-Brown law firm who admitted their names were used to apply for medical cannabis grow licenses within the state. 
OBN director Donnie Anderson said the two attorneys had represented foreign individuals who were growing cannabis and shipping it out of state. One legal assistant told investigators that she was paid $3,000 for each license she put her name on, and at least $1,000 was paid back to the law firm. She said, quote, she was meeting with clients so frequently that this was the only type of work she was doing, according to court documents. Eric Brown and Logan James were each charged with multiple counts of conspiracy, falsifying records, and cultivation of a dangerous substance. When Attorney General John O'Connor announced the charges last week, he said that Jones-Brown law firm employees are listed as owners on over 400 grow operations in the state. The law firm partners have since parted ways, and one appears to be claiming ignorance. Ken Adair, who's representing Brown, said the two were no longer partners and that his client's, quote, conduct and knowledge of what went on is inconsistent with the mental state or criminal intent required to violate the law, end quote. This year, Oklahoma has passed several laws trying to bring the state's medical cannabis industry under some semblance of government control. There's a bill to raise penalties for providing medical cannabis to non-patients, and Governor Ken Stitt put his signature on a bill to make the state Medical Marijuana Authority a standalone agency. Co-author John Eccles believes this will help out with the complexity of regulation and compliance and help, quote, cut down the black market, end quote. He also noted that the so-called black market, his words, not mine, threatens the well-being of Oklahomans and refers to licensed businesses as, quote, the legitimate businesses approved by the voters. So there's this whole licensing scheme in Oklahoma. I'm very curious to hear what some of um, the, my fellow cor- correspondents have to say and anyone from the audience. I'm Menika Mahajan reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. So many cheaters, cheaters everywhere. They, law enforcement needs to spend more time finding things like this. Thank you. 400 yeah. operations. Jesus. So you support, you support uh, law enforcement going after cannabis operators, Susan? Yeah, I, I, I support going after people that cheat. Yes. I mean, it's only cheating if you get caught, right, Jason? I mean, you know what I'm saying, Rico? You know what I'm talking about? I, I think, you know, we, this has to be something that we look at because we've been talking about Oklahoma and the wild, wild west and this whole open market. And there is a, you know, do we see this open market as the best market, the way to commercialize? Or are there ways that we can um, put some guardrails so that people don't take advantage of an opportunity? Um, because I can tell you that there's a lot of operators who are looking at this and, you know, it's just not fair. And so you want to have an open market. However, you don't want people gaming the system and especially, um, you know, folks that are professionals who should know better. So, you know, just for those states that are looking at other ways to, um, you know, do a better job of commercializing this industry, let's look to Oklahoma and figure out how we can maybe take some example, but also do it a little bit better. You know, Roz, my mama always told me that life is not fair. Hey, Matthew, are you in Oklahoma? Uh, No, ma'am. I've done some consultation in Oklahoma. I just wanted to speak to this. Um, Matthew St. Germain, I I go between both of the markets. and, And what I'd like to say is there's a lot of us who've been doing this since the eighties or nineties when people were going to federal prison and getting guns pointed to our head. And and a lot of us weren't doing this to make money, but we were actually doing this to upset the dominant paradigm for myself. I got into cannabis after LSD usage uh, disrupted me from going into the special forces to murder people for the uh, imperialist ambitions of America and cannabis and psychedelics are 
asymmetrical warfare in that the the, the ruling classes of the planet are, are extracting resources, um, exercising white supremacy and and other hor- horrific tactics in their in their bid to continue economic stratification. And I think legal cannabis users, I support it, and they should do what they're doing. But this push to call for prosecution of those of us in the outlaw lane is disgusting to me because there's a lot of us here that don't like what's happening in the legal cannabis lane. Every, it's being Walmartized. Everybody's getting a name tag and a minimum wage job except for the three guys at the top who go to the Maldives three times a, month, uh, three times a year to spend their money. And so I just want to like – be a be a culture keeper and a steward of what's going on and say yo you guys like let's point towards less prosecution for everyone and what really needs to happen is a change of our entire society and it just really turns me off to ever hear anybody especially these these folks in legal cannabis who are exhorting for the criminality and prosecution of folks that are actually trying to change the world in a, in a positive way so what? i'll leave it at that thank you so much for coming up to comment Appreciate so that insight, Matthew. Yeah, I just wanted to, uh, Matt, yeah, you're, you're spot on. And I think that whenever we're talking about, first of all, there is no such thing as illegal cannabis. Amongst us kids, let's be clear that this thing has been demonized. And so whenever we let gun-toting thugs into the mix, it's going to be bad. And so while even I, as a licensed operator, sometimes feel a little bit disgruntled because, you know, legacy operators may not be under the same burden. We are still on the same team and I would never, it's still snitching. It's not right. There's just no way around it. And we need to continue to advocate to find and ways to find ways for those quote unquote traditional marketers to find a way to compliance. The problem is not them. The problem is the system and calling the police at any time is always the wrong answer because we are slipping down the road to a totalitarian state and we can't have that. Do not call the police on your friends and neighbors. It's not worth it. Word, brother. Gee, thank Hashtag you for standing in solidarity, fishing. bro. Yeah. And, and here's the thing is like, I'm, I'm going through a crazy, I'm just to share a little bit. I'm going through a crazy moment in my life, man. I'm, I'm, I'm trying some new shit. I'm super broke. I'm watching a lot of people with weird attitudes and nobody on this call, but I'm watching a lot of people sur- survive and thrive that maybe aren't even bringing the right approach to life. But you know what I never do is I never attack them. I wish them the best because I know the only power that I have is my power to wake up and control my emotions, my attitude, and my works on the daily. And I focus on the power of who I am as a person and how I can fix things instead of ever looking at somebody through who through luck, good fortune, or harder work is winning the race better than me. Because that's never gonna, that's not gonna win the race for me. The only thing I can do is put my head down and do the work. So thank you for standing in solidarity, Guy, and everybody. I love but, you guys. But Guy, that's you. I mean, um, I, I feel like the bad guys are stealing the industry. Absolutely. I mean, I, I, what, that's what is, all the MSOs. I, I, here's the thing: is the like, who's, I, I've been, I've been in the in, in the weed game again since the '80s, and I've like, I've dealt with organized criminals. I've been home invasion robbed. I, the bad guys have always been in the industry, but then when you look past that. The real bad guy is like the Queen of England. You realize that she has almost every precious stone from Africa that they stole in a tower in Westminster Abbey. She feeds off of the carcasses of the poor. And then you have these – then you have the Bush cartel and the Getty cartel and the Rockefeller cartel and all these people who are providing economic stratification, uh, extracting resources to the top and not sharing with anyone. And that's the problem. And the moment we start dividing up between ourselves by race, by ethnicity – and or by who's doing a legal cannabis gig and or who's just pushing the cannabis game forward illegally because they don't have the access or for whatever reasons. Now we're squabbling amongst, amongst each other instead of listening to the message of the plant teachers 
and working for equality and generativity and ridding ourselves of the dichotomy of us versus them and ridding ourselves of the vampires in a peaceful way so that we can all have a seat at the table because that's the only way this thing is going to work out on the earth for any one of us. That's what I'm trying to get to. Thank you, Matthew. Um, I really appreciate you commenting on this. And I wanted to comment on the story uh, before we move on. Uh, so I got a call from friends in Georgia uh, last month that said that there's a group going around Georgia doing these um, seminars asking people to invest $50,000 to get in on a cultivation grow in Oklahoma. So they're going to places where it's not legal, where, they don't, where people don't understand the market or how it works, and they're asking people to invest in cultivations in Oklahoma. Like, they are, they are bad actors. They're taking advantage of people's ignorance. And it's a shame because when he called me and asked me for advice, I was like, do you understand what's happening in Oklahoma? <laughs> like, you are getting in on a market that's oversaturated. Nobody's making money in Oklahoma. And they're growing garbage weed. There's, like, one person I know that grows good weed in Oklahoma. And there's probably a handful of people that I know that are making good money out there. So shout out to them and keep the trap alive. I know some people that are making some good weed for Oklahoma. They're just not in Oklahoma. <laughs> <laughs> let's keep this shit moving. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. let's, let's keep this shit moving. <laughs> she splits her days and nights between political strategy and baking delicious treats, but you best believe our next correspondent's a full-time, feisty, red-headed conservative with claimed Mayflower roots and a deep love and affection for safe banking. Up next, the founder of Panoptic Strategies and our very own Washington insider, Gretchen Gailey. Good afternoon, Rico. Uh, my headline is coming from Marijuana Moment. And the headline is State Marijuana Protections Not Included in Justice Department Funding Bill, Despite Lawmakers' Pleas. A much anticipated congressional spending bill does not currently include provisions to protect all state, territory, and tribal marijuana programs from Justice Department interference, despite pleas from dozens of bipartisan lawmakers. There were high hopes that such language could be attached to the base bill for the fiscal year 2023 appropriations for commerce, justice, science, and related agencies, as introduced by congressional leaders. But that didn't pan out, meaning lawmakers will again need to make their case for the protections inclusion as amendments, either in committee or on the House floor as in past years. Representatives Earl Blumenauer, Tom McClintock, Eleanor Holmes Norton, and Barbara Lee, along with 44 of their colleagues, recently sent a letter calling on the chairman and ranking members of an appropriation subcommittee to address the issue through the must-pass legislation. The text released yesterday didn't include the sweeping protections, however, instead it simply maintained an existing rider preventing the Justice Department from using its appropriated federal funds to interfere in the implementation of state medical cannabis programs only, not extending those protections to all state marijuana programs including recreational laws. Uh, the more limited language has been annually renewed in federal law each year since 2014. The new CGS appropriations measure also, again, includes in the base bill language prohibiting the Justice Department from using its federal funds to interfere in state industrial hemp programs. Now, since those protections ultimately didn't make it into the base bill that was unveiled yesterday, that means congressional supporters will have to fight for its inclusion through the amendment process as the CGS appropriations legislation advances. In 2019 and 2020, the House attached the sweeping state and tribal protections to its version of the appropriations legislation as amendments adopted on the floor, but they've yet to be incorporated into any final package enacted into law. CJS legislation did not make it into the 2021 
bill, uh, but supporters had planned an amendment that year as well. Lawmakers have argued that language should be included in the original bill as introduced by leaders circumventing the need for a floor vote in light of the large number of states enacting legalization and growing bipartisan support for reform. Blumenauer testified before the subcommittee during a member's day in April, describing his request for the inclusion of the cannabis language as his top priority in the bill this year. He said states from coast to coast across the political spectrum, red and blue, have taken meaningful action to end prohibitory policies and allow the development of both adult use and medical marijuana programs. The federal government should not interfere with these programs and the will of the voters. Uh, while I find it unfortunate that they did not include the language for those who are concerned, basically what's happening right now is things are remaining status quo. Uh, no language has been added to protect uh, adult use states, but the language that has been in place for years for medical states remains intact. Uh, there is still another chance to fight uh, when it comes to adding amendments to the bill. It's also important to remember uh, that the Senate will accept to see if the Senate will accept any of the House marijuana proposals. Uh, Senate appropriators have not yet released their spending bills for fiscal year 2023, um, and they typically wait until after the House has acted. Um, it is unclear what cannabis laws will be enacted this year. This is Gretchen for State of Cannabis News Hour. Gretchen, this is in reference. This is in reference to the Rohrbacher Farr Amendment, the federal appropriations bill that uh, prohibits DOJ and DEA from extrapolating federal funds to after state licensed cannabis businesses. Yes, this is a, that rider uh, now. What it came Rohrbacher Blumenauer. Now it's just included in language. I don't know what the hell they're calling it anymore, but it's the same damn thing. Well, I'd, I'd like to note that we're living under a Democratic-controlled Congress, and this is the first time that this bill has not been placed in in the spending budget. It was in the spending budget all throughout the Trump administration, but now all of a sudden the Democrats that are so pro-cannabis can't even get this shit in that's been had bipartisan support for a number of years. It's total simmer, simmer, simmer down, Jason. The This language is still in the bill. What they were pushing for was the inclusion of adult use states. That is what did not make it into the They bill. actually do not need to include adult use states because of the fact that the budget prohibits DOJ and, D and DEA from uh, extrapolating federal funds. They actually don't have the money to investigate whether cannabis is medical or adult use or whatever else. So therefore, it covers all cannabis by being medical cannabis. That's how the bill works. Well, shit, I would do that for free. They don't need budget for that. Jason, you're so you're so feisty and so quick to so attack fiery. these Democrats. I, I would I'll say you're them. correct, Jason, that they don't have the funds to go after this stuff. Um, Jason, no, but they but with it being medical, it covers all cannabis is what I'm saying, because they don't have the funds to determine if cannabis is medical or adult use. They have to consider it all. Medical. I understand what you're saying, Jason. However, if somebody wanted to go after a business, I think it's going to be on, on the part of the business to prove that they're not medical. And that's not a good thing. In theory, they could still go after anybody they fucking want uh, when it comes to adult use states. And it's going to be on that business to prove that they are medical and not adult use. And that's just fucked up for the whole. You industry. want government to do this, Jason? That sounds very socialist. Jason, how instrumental did you have any uh, influence on the original Warbuck or Far 100%. language? Look at that. Look who's on our team, people. Uh, Omar Figueroa is up from the audience and would like to weigh in. Omar. 
yes, you know, this Robocker Farr Amendment would not be needed if Republican Mitch McConnell got off his ass and passed the Act, which has already made it through the House. Thank the you. The Act is dead. Thanks to Republicans like mean, Mitch McConnell. You're, you're, you're yes, it sure it sure does it sure doesn't mean it's wrong. It sure doesn't mean it's wrong, Jason. It's dead. The more well, I would deschedule cannabis, deschedule or bust. Call Omar, it what I you would mean. Also place the blame of the death of the more act at the feet of good old Chuck Schumer, who wants nothing else to go through except his bill, which he hasn't introduced. The Agreed. Take that. The real question, Gretchen, is do you have your dog trained to bite Democrats? Is that why he's barking? Yes, they can smell a lid from a mile away. <laughs> oh, oh, my God. No wonder he's so feisty. Smell, training dogs to smell the libs. We love everybody, and I think Jason made a good point about the Biden administration failing to act when, yeah, this has like been a tradition. So, Just more um, of the same. I think we, any one final word? Well... Fuck safe banking. Pass safe okay. banking. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, you guys. Will it happen? Will it happen? We should get one of those uh, gambling things going about what date it's going to be. But we're going to quickly that. relight the room. You are tuned into the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Often the things expressed in the State of Cannabis News Hour are those of the individual speakers and not those of any other speaker, the State of Cannabis, or its members. The statements made in the State of Cannabis News Hour do not constitute legal or accounting advice, and the State of Cannabis and the speakers make no representation regarding the legal status of any substance in any country, area, or territory, or of any authorities. The views expressed in this room do not establish any fiduciary relationship. The sponsorships of the State of Cannabis News Hour do not imply or constitute any endorsement by the State of Cannabis or the expression of any opinion whatsoever on the part of the State of Cannabis or any speaker. Viewer discretion advised. Let's keep smoking the news. This well-known and revered industry OG is a veteran, dope dad, and defender of our culture, never scared to speak up for the industry's legacy. Up next, the co-founder and CEO of 2022 Emerald Cup champion Papa and Barkley is here to bless our ears with a little G-Code gospel. Guy Rocourt, what you got for us today, my man? Thanks, Rico. Good morning, Jason. Good morning, Susan. Today, my article is coming out of high times and it's called cannabis very promising as opioid replacement early studies results show um i don't believe this is news to us but it's great to see more people jumping on and proving out what i believe most of us on the call know to be true so biota in south africa plans to determine how useful cannabis is for pain management south africa's first ethically approved Oh, that's interesting. Ethically approved cannabis clinic. I didn't catch that wording in the beginning. Um, trials have begun in Johannesburg with the goal to determine if cannabis can replace opioids for pain management. According to a June 21 press release, more and more cannabis shows potential for reducing and replacing opioids. Biota, a subsidiary, subsidiary of Labat Africa, is the brainchild of Dr. Shishka Galau, or Gallo, I'm sorry, the cannabis clinician and the principal investigator in the trials, which took over 18 months to get official clearance. And the announcement reads, Dr. Gallo is a South African pioneer in the field of international medical cannabis research. The researchers hope to observe a thousand patients who have been taking opioids for pain management for at least three months and are prepared to switch to cannabis as an alternative. Uh, the two chemovars being used are Tallyman and Exodus, sourced from aquaponics. And of course, the article says that aquaponics is a better cultivation technique believed to allow for more benefits. I don't believe that's accurate. It also claims that the strain is high in THC and CBG, being rich in beta-carophylline and myrcene. Again, anybody who knows cannabis science knows that that's basically some basic early cut weed 
Nothing special about those particular compounds, but again, thank you, Dr. Gallo, for moving forward. Um, so she hopes to do a thousand patients. They did have a pilot uh, study. They did not say how many people were in the pilot study, but in the pilot study, they used flour that was about 15 to 25 milligrams THC with 0.5 milligrams of CBD. And they used an oil that was a one-to-one -one with 15 to 20 milligrams THC and 15 to 20 milligrams CBD. And in the pilot, in the pilot group, patients under 55 preferred to smoke while patients over 55 preferred the oil. Patients who smoked the cannabis gained instant relief while those who took the oil uh, had a time period to wait before relief. Again, also pretty straightforward. Dr. Peter Greenspoon, uh, Grinspoon, a medical cannabis specialist at the Massachusetts General Hospital and instructor at Harvard Medical School, as well as the son of a psychiatrist and longtime cannabis advocate, Lester Greenspoon, uh, you, uh, you can watch him on Harvard and stuff like that, but he basically goes on to say that he does not think that cannabis is great for severe pain. However, he finds it to be great for lesser pain and includes uh, a little blurb about the different kinds of opioids, including non-steroidal opio opioids like Advil and Motrin that are not particularly safe either. Eventually, they can lead to dangerous things like heart attack, gastric ulcers, and kidney damage. And so whenever... Uh, there's an opportunity to switch for cannabis. He highly recommends it, stating that cannabis is definitely safer than opioids. He said he wonders if in some cases it's safer than even the non-steroidals. So this is a great article worth taking a, a look at. Again, kudos to the people in Africa for at least starting and having a legit study. And, you know, thank you to Dr. Gallo for waiting 18 months. And in that regard, you are a pioneer. At first glance, the research cited seems to be a little bit behind what we know. Um, I can tell you as a person that works in pain management, um, we have tens of thousands of anecdotal, unsolicited reviews that clearly show that cannabis is better for pain. And if you have any family members that are taking north of four Advil a day, you should be trying to switch them to a pain uh, management regime using a cannabis tincture. It would be the best thing for them. And I also do agree that in terms of traumatic pain, shock, you just broke your leg or something like that, yeah, you might need the opiates. But the minute you can push the button and manage your pain and get your mind right, you should be moving to THC because it'll be far better for your recovery. That's my opinion. I'm not a doctor, so please check it out. My name is Guy Rocourt reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Guy, thank you so much for covering this story. Um, people who know my personal background, my story, like cannabis is the only thing that helped me kick my habit of opioids that stem from uh, college football. And um, I agree with pretty much everything in this in, in this study, period. Ditto. Ditto. We've got Dr. Bong up from the audience. Dr. Bong, did you want to weigh in? You are on mute, sir. I'm sorry. I always do that. Hey, shout out from Dr. from the Bronx is Dr. Bong. Totally agree with everything Guy says. Shout out to you, Susan, sending out prayers to you. Yeah, I mean, I've helped so many patients who have come to cannabis because of their opioid reduction and it's helped so many people and even in conjunction like we keep we seem to forget that we can use cannabis as a treatment therapy along with the other medications like with hospice care you know cannabis can be beneficial because as we know you know the um the term uh comfort measures sometimes we have to figure out what that means in comforting a person or comforting the family but another conversation but yes yeah, shout out to you guys great job geek great story thank you dr bong i'm out yeah no i agree agree with all this and i think it's important to share this uh 
Lisa Capitini, who's in the audience, uh, says that Dr. Grinspoon is actually doing a lecture tonight at 7 p.m. Eastern on this exact subject. And if anyone wants to register for it, it's D as in diamond, org to register. Awesome. Let's keep smoking the news. Jason. Oh, sorry. I, was, I had go? my mic off. My bad. <laughs> sorry, Rico. She's a Florida-based entrepreneurial badass leading the charge for the ultimate cannabis lifestyle brand, Black Buddha Cannabis. Also the founder and CEO of Minorities for Medical Marijuana. Coming to the stage next, it's Roz McCarthy. Good morning, everybody. Roz McCarthy here. Um, got a really interesting article I want to share with you guys, and um, here it goes. So this comes from MJ Biz Daily. It says New York spending $200 million on marijuana social equity properties. And this is by uh, Chief Correspondent John Schroyer. So New York is set to inject $200 million into the local marijuana real estate market, leasing up to 150 retail properties that will be given to social equity businesses to give them a leg up in the state's new recreational market. The move is believed to be the first of its kind in the U.S. cannabis industry, and if successful, could provide a roadmap for other states rolling out social equity programs. At least one brokerage firm, which is CBRE Group, is already scouting locations on behalf of the Dormitory Authority of the State of New York, the agency overseeing the disbursement of funds, a spokesman confirmed for uh, MJ Biz Daily. Um, CBR representatives are looking for good retail locations throughout the state located in municipalities that have opted in to allow retail dispensaries. Um, while the DAS, while the DASNY said that no leases have been signed for social equity companies as of yet, Industry insiders say the government's entrance into marijuana real estate is causing rippling effects for other businesses, particularly smaller operators. They're out there. They're pounding the pavement, Donnie Moskovic, a real estate broker uh, with CBR agents. Moskovic has been working with Cresco Labs, one of the state's 10 existing medical marijuana licensees, to expand the Chicago-based multi-state operator's retail footprint in anticipation of the adult use market launch. Maskovic said there's been a frenzy in the New York real estate market this year as entrepreneurs prep for the recreational market rollout, which could happen later this year. They're everywhere. They're looking at all locations. So he's, he, if you speak to their broker, their broker tells you there's a $50 million in a fund sitting there already out, already out of the $200 million and they're executing deals. The real estate support for social equity applicants has drawn praise for, from New York progressive approach to promoting diversity and increasing business opportunities for those affected by the nation's war on, drug, on drugs. But it also has triggered concerns among local entrepreneurs and real estate brokers, some of whom contend that real estate agents working on behalf of the state might increase competition and prices for smaller operators also hunting for real estate properties. Um, it, it goes on to talk about, again, how do we make this more competitive and more fair for the industry as a whole? In addition, landlords often favor long-term deals with state over leases with private businesses because the state is viewed as a more reliable tenant. As a result, Piper's trying to steer clear of whatever he hears CBRE agents are scouting. When we find out very quietly where the state is looking, we can tell our client this section might be too crowded and we should try the next block up. So here's a little, just a breakdown of the program details. 
First, um, you know, according to DASNY, the state's fund has not yet been allocated. He added that a pair of requests for proposals tied to the fund are on schedule. So they're looking to choose a firm to select locations and sign tenant agreements to be completed no earlier than June 20th. And then picking and building out um, out firm to oversee construction at the least locations to be chosen by July 11th. Um, there are several unanswered questions. And again, um, one thing that that popped up in this article that I thought that I thought was interesting. Um, it says many retail locations rent for as much as $45,000 per month. Piper noted, if you're paying $45,000 a month, that doesn't give you many locations with a $200 million budget. So as I'll pause right here. I would love to get my colleagues to weigh in on what do you think about uh, the state of New York allocating this $200 million for social equity to have real estate. We know in New York, real estate is at a all- I think we just lost you there, Roz. This program has corruption written all over it. Well, I mean, well, besides your besides your corruption written all over it. Besides that, do you think, Jason? Let's let's just let's let's be a little more intentional. Do you think a program like this will be a support for social equity? If you imagine, if you were social equity and you yes. didn't have the expenses to be able to, or the research or resources. Do you think I, that I'm in you- social equity and I don't have the expenses, so I can already put myself in, the, in that box, Roz. But what I'm saying is this, is that I imagine a company like CBRE, the only reason that they're doing this is to generate profits and revenue and streamline, streamline, uh, streamline rents coming in through, through their different buildings. And so I just imagine that there's probably not a designated cap on what they're allowed to charge for rent to these applicants. So I just smell, I smell corruption on it already. AJ, while I do agree with you on the CBRE uh, comment, Jason, uh, I'd say like here in Los Angeles, the number one gripe against the system from social equity uh, applicants was the fact that they had to pay rent for three years before they even got their fucking licenses. So um, them doing uh, New York doing this deed like like up front uh, gives them a leg up on probably the biggest issue that we faced here in Los Angeles uh, when it came to. uh, But but Rico. That, that, that biggest issue is a simple, easy legislative fix by not requiring the applicant to hold on to the property through the whole process and by paying rent through that process. That's an easy legislative fix that they but could have done but in the York market space. It's still expensive. It's, it's still not expensive the cost, if you're not uh, required the doing business. to hold on to the real estate. It's not required, but, so that it's e- not an expense. You still have to search and find those. The, the, you have to still search and find those properties, and you have to do the haggling with all these uh, shiesty ass landlords as well. So you're yeah, that yeah. If you have, it's a positive. Be, it's going to be better than haggling with a. Some, I didn't say that. Don't, don't I, I, I said. The, I said the fact. I said the fact that the state is. Uh, I'm putting up the initiative to do this. It's something that California should have done right off the bat as well. Right. Right. But I think what Jason is saying, I think what Jason is saying is if the state didn't require applicants to hold the real estate while the state fucks around with regulations for up to three years or even four years in Vermont, for example, that's the problem in the system, not the fact that real estate's expensive or not. The fact is that the the problem is that they're required to hold for so long. And you you know this, Rico, like you mentioned a person that uh, is literally homeless because of this situation. It's because of the regulation, right? Exactly. I had somebody, I had somebody on my Canavision team that actually went. But you got. But listen. But okay. So let's take that out of the equation. Let, let's take that out that you don't have to have real estate. But at some point in time, the expense of real estate, especially for a market like New York, like California, is so pricey that to have something that is going to subsidize that expense for you. Let's say you're ready to go. You're ready for your build out. 
to have that type of program in place, there, I think there could be some positive. Mark my words, if there's not some type of regulatory yeah. control mechanism put in place, CBRE is going to go and take all the best real estate throughout the entire state of New York for retail, and then they are going to exploit the, uh, so, the social so, equity applicants by exorbitant yeah. rent fees that are actually you, paying for the building, and they're basically going to be a silent partner with them in the business. Well, at least at least you'll have one motherfucker to take down if that happens. Right, and plus, of and, the and plus they report that we have here and, in California, and plus they report back to the regulatory agency. They're working on behalf of the regulatory agency because the regulatory they're agency they're never working on behalf of, of the regulatory agency. Wait, hold on, hold on, Jason. Joe, Jason, hold on one second. As a professional service, the regulatory agency is not in a position to be able to facilitate uh, commercial contracts between a landlord and the leasees. So you have to have someone do that for you. You have to have someone that is facilitating those agreements. So the state agency can't do it. So they have to hire someone that's doing it. I think they did CBRE. And I agree with you, the, the opportunity to go and try to game the system back to Susan's point about people that are doing stuff that are gaming the system should be, you know, should be, um, you know, should be identified. But at some point in time, you're going to need some type of commercial realtor to make these facilitate these transactions. So if it's not CBRE, it's going to be someone else. Indeed. We got to keep it moving here. So up next, this amazing storyteller's got a smoother delivery than an Amazon delivery guy on a fully charged bird scooter. All about truth, justice, empathy, and getting dope weed news stories to the people. This communication strategist and publisher of the American Cannabis Report's landing has been confirmed and here to hit us with a little hump day heat. Christopher Smith, what you got for us, my man? Hey, thanks so much, uh, Rico. Jason, Susan, hi. Uh, Jason and Stone, I'm going to join you in Texas today where I have a pretty short story for me anyway. It comes from High Times. Um, the 2022 Texas State Republican Convention has, was held last week uh, between June 16th and 18th for the first time in person since 2018. And there, the party released a 40-page document called the Reports, uh, Report of the Permanent 2022 Platform and Resolutions Committee. I wish I had a little more time to go through this because there's some Truly appalling stuff in here, actually, I think. Uh, altogether, there are 275 platform planks or principal policies of the Republican Party of Texas to address a multitude of agenda topics. After a quick scan, I identified ide ideas that are anti-democracy. It says that Joe Biden is not the president, anti-environment, anti-social equity, anti-health care, anti-women's rights, rejecting the Equal Rights Amendment yet again anti-sanctity of the family to make its own decisions about its own children, anti-diversity of any kind, including the statement that homosexuality is an abnormal life choice, anti-United Nations, but pro-gun, pro-Christian nation, pro-Christian schools. What the fuck is in the water down there, Stone? Democratic gubernatorial candidate Beto O'Rourke posted on Twitter that some of the extreme agenda among these planks are, again, to ab abolish abortion, defund public schools, take away health care, repeal gun laws, deny voting rights, and reject marijuana legalization, which gets us to the point here. Uh, the report uh, uh, briefly lit, uh, addresses uh, cannabis marijuana, and hemp in separate items. Uh, it mentions cannabis once. Uh, it's described as cannabis classification. Congress should remove cannabis from the list of Schedule I drugs and move it to Schedule II. Well, 
That's a non-starter. They clearly haven't studied, done their homework here. Pushing cannabis to schedule two would serve up the entire industry to big pharma. Uh, ironically, I believe Joe Biden also suggested this as one of the very few mentions that he would actually do something with cannabis. So go back under your rocks, both of you. Your ideas are useless. The Texas Republican platform also uses the term marijuana as well. Marijuana remains illegal. And they oppose, the Republicans oppose the legalization of recreational marijuana and offer opportunities for drug treatment before penalties for its illegal possession, use, or distribution. It seems that Texas Republicans are willing to make a statement about cannabis's utilitarian cousin, hemp. They say that, uh, under reduced business regulations, they say we believe the following businesses should be minimally regulated at all levels, which includes uh, 14 laws in question It states uh, the use of hemp as an agricultural commodity, and that's the whole mention. So no mention of Delta 8 that's derived from this agricultural commodity, so I guess they're trying to protect gas stations to get people high. And that's all I have to say about Texas Republicans for the moment. I'm done speaking. Thank you, Christopher. What do you have to say, Jason? I I think, Christopher, I think you pointed out an, an important thing. They clearly stated that they're not for the recreational use of cannabis, but they did no mention of medical cannabis. So to me, by not mentioning it means that they're supporting medical cannabis. Yeah, I think it's already legal there. So they're just letting it, letting it go through. Well, I, that's my point is that they're not blocking it. They're not doing anything to harm the rights of patients in Texas. So therefore, that's a good thing. Whether or not they want it to be everyone to have it, it's a totally different type of argument and totally type of discussion. But the fact that they are backing medical cannabis, I think, speaks volumes to the Republican Party. Schedule two, Jason. Schedule you, you gotta, two. I'm not you got to be careful, Jason. You're gonna, you're gonna. Done. I'm not saying that at all. Okay, but what I'm saying <laughs> is, take the wins where you fucking get them, guys. This is not a win. That's ridiculous. Christopher, Christopher said it perfectly. I, I, I mean, they said that they, they, they said, uh, Christopher, correct me if I'm wrong. They said that that Joe Biden is not the president. It, that's correct, Jason. At the very end of the document, it says clearly Joe Biden was not uh, not not elected. I can read it if you want, but yes, did, that's it. Did they did, did they acknowledge Hunter Biden as the president then? <laughs> uh, don't take the bait, Christopher. Do not no take comment. The bait. Take the bait. On the, on, on, the, on the advice of my counsel, on the advice of my counsel, Rico and Meade, I am not commenting. Taking the fifth. Take the bait. Let's keep, it, let's keep this shit moving, Jason. Who we got next? Oh, yeah. Coming up next, this beard was born and bred in New York. Maybe that's why this beard commands such a presence, because, baby, it's cold outside. So cold that the beard was compelled to move to sunny Long Beach, California, where the beard received a law degree. Known in the bar exam as the Brandon Beard Award for high scores, this intellectual IP attorney and CEO of Fruit Slabs is none other than Brandon Dorsky. Let's go, Brandon. What do you have for us today? Thanks for having me. Today, my headline comes from Cal Matters. It's California's next cannabis battle may be coming to a city near you. This article focused on initiatives at the local level to change cannabis laws in some cities, and in particular, Elliot Lewis's efforts to change laws in some coastal communities here in Southern California, Manhattan Be- and particularly Manhattan Beach. Manhattan Beach residents have an initiative to vote on this fall that would allow as many as two licensed cannabis businesses. The push for this vote has set off a battle between those that want to see more cannabis in coastal communities like Manhattan Beach and city leaders ca- claiming to be protecting the city. 
Local residents interviewed for the article acknowledged that city officials are trying to preserve this bubble, even though lots of residents do consume cannabis. Samantha Kadera, a Manhattan Beach resident, said, The reality is there's widespread use here, so it would be nice to have it around here. More than 60% of cities and counties do not allow retail sales in California. And in places where they do exist, there are sometimes limits on the numbers of dispensaries within a city. And existing operators have put pressure on the state to override local restrictions in Prop 64 and open up the entire state to retail sales. And at the state capitol, a push to remove local oversight is generally a non-starter, in part because many people at the state capitol got there, got to the state capitol through previously working in local municipalities. A, lo- a recent bill that would have only required local governments to permit medical cannabis businesses was actually pared back to only guarantee patient access to delivery. Hirsch Jane, founder of the cannabis consulting firm Ananda Strategy, has tracked roughly two dozen cities where citizen-driven initiatives are qualifying for the ballot or pressing local officials to develop their own ordinances for taxation and regulation of cannabis sales. And he says voters have lost their patience. They might be willing to cut their elected officials some slack, but after a while, they're going to take matters into their own hands. And that is where Catalyst Elliot Lewis really comes in. The self-described motherfucking hustler to the core and co-founder of Catalyst Cannabis Co. and their 11 dispensaries took the battle to the ballot box. He funded an initiative to require dispensaries in Manhattan Beach as well as Redondo Beach, Hermosa Beach, and El Segundo. And voters in all four cities will have the opportunity to weigh in on permitting cannabis sales in November or March. Lewis has acknowledged that his frustration and the people's frustration is because of the Karens and Chadwick money bags that run city governments and who ignore the will of the people. Lewis said, quote, you're talking about cocktail party donor people. I don't think they understand where the zeitgeist of the younger generation is. You've metaphorically got to take a gun to their head because that's just how they operate. Manhattan Beach may best capture the tension between Elliot and his ilk and the city government of Chad's and Karen's. Though 62% of the city voters supported Prop 64, officials there have remained skeptical about allowing legal cannabis. City council members claim there has been no groundswell of demand for retail sales amongst their constituents. And I kind of think that's because these council members are just the types of people that want to be in government, and so so they do not really know a lot of people that simply enjoy cannabis. Mayor Steve Napolitano told Cal Matters in an email, quote, it's about the money. There's a lot of money in the South Bay and the dispensary owners know this. So why have pot shops that residents don't need or want just to enrich a few owners? How about to provide access to patients and your constituents that enjoy cannabis more than the people that work for the city's government? How about to realize the objectives of the people? How about to limit the money flowing to illicit operators that currently deliver to the city and don't live in it? How about to build a better tax revenue base for your city? Despite having having not developed any effective legislation since the passage of Prop 64, in response to Elliot Lewis's efforts, the Council of Manhattan Beach has directed city staff to develop competing measures for the November ballot that would maintain the ban on on dispensaries and establish regulations, including a 25% local sales tax that would essentially make opening a dispensary in Manhattan Beach a non-starter for everyone other than the filthy rich that can just burn their money. Hildy Stern, Manhattan Beach Council member who served as mayor of the city, debated how to respond to Elliott's initiative, said, quote, it doesn't fit with our community. It certainly doesn't fit with the development of our community. 
Stern is a mother of four who called the possibility of retail cannabis sales in Manhattan Beach to be distressing because of Manhattan's, quote, small town family oriented nature. She said, quote, I do not feel that the retail sale of cannabis in Manhattan Beach is appropriate. I am really concerned about how access increases normalization to our youth. So Hildy Stern is a helicopter Karen parent. And she is using her position to push her conservative parenting agenda onto an entire city where two out of three residents that vote do not agree with her. She said, it cheapens a high-end beach town, said Manhattan Beach resident Charlene Harding, a non-smoker who self-reports hating going to the beach when it smells like a skunk. She is concerned about cheapening her high-end residents, and that is how the city has decided to frame the debate, as an affront on their high-end status. The objections around town include that dispensaries would attract undesirable visitors, that it would be hypocritical to allow cannabis but not tobacco, the community is too residential, and that people can already get cannabis via delivery or driving to a nearby city. These objections are not coming from a majority of Manhattan Beach residents, though. David Zelaski said the city is full of people who would embrace dispensaries, and the city would benefit from the tax revenue if the shops were in Manhattan Beach. Tax revenue is truly a compelling motivation for cities to allow cannabis. Lewis targeted these coastal communities because Prop 64 in those areas was hot, or support for Prop 64 in those areas was high, and the city councils were just choosing not to act. Lewis split the cost for circulating positions with Tradecraft Farms and other cannabis brand and petitioned to overturn the bans on retail sales in the four beach towns. After collecting 10% of registered voters' signatures, officials could either adopt the ordinances as written or put them on the ballot. The strategy worked in El Monte, and Catalyst opened a retail there last October after city officials ratified their ordinance. That same outcome did not play out in the beach towns, however, and Elliot is not relenting. Hermosa Beach and El Segundo are set to vote in November on allowing two storefronts each, and Redondo Beach has signaled the most openness while Manhattan Beach appears to be the toughest market to crack into. The Redondo Beach initiative has been punted to the March 2023 ballot, giving the city more time to finish developing their own ordinance based on recommendations and which will likely have more restrictive framework. Uh, this is Brandon Dorsky reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Shout out to Elliot Lewis for calling out these prohibitionist lawmakers across the state and making sure that cannabis is more viable to patients that need it across the state. I agree with I agree with Elliot and um, him saying you got to smack these motherfuckers across their head uh, to get the uh, to, to get what you want done done. Uh, however, in Manhattan Beach, uh, we did cover that story uh, about it was, uh, like eight months ago or so. He and his team put out a 19-year-old to uh, rep the initiative. <laughs> I don't even know if they're uh, legally uh, able to be representing um, um, uh, the initiative that they're trying to push out there. That was if so weird. And over, if you're 18 and over, you're allowed to represent an initiative because it's about voting. Not but about you, you, you can't find at least from one 21-year-old <laughs> to do that I mean, uh, that, 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 that doesn't even matter. That's a prohibitionist. It does matter. Argument. It was a no, stupid it's strategy. A it's a prohibitionist argument. If you're 18, you're allowed to vote. You are the demographic of who is going to pass something like that in a community like Huntington Beach. So shout out to them. I just wish. Oh, okay, well. Go, Susan. Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, speaking of this community, I was arrested twice by the South Bay cops, and they are racist motherfuckers. Let me tell you something. Christopher, last word. We got to go. So you're saying I just wish someone had called out people. the League of Cities as the evil villain in this whole thing for trying to push California to not allow cannabis under their under their weird reefer madness sort of hidden agenda of uh, local control, instead, which which killed business, killed families, and and killed tax revenues throughout the state, made us a laughing stock in America. So the League of Cities is a criminal here. 
Yeah, for sure. Uh, we've reached the top of the hour, though. That was a really great show. If you missed any of it, you can catch it wherever you get your podcasts. Please subscribe and leave us a review. A big thank you to all the correspondents that comb through all the headlines each day just to bring us just what we need to know. A big thank you to Rico and Jason for co-producing the show and our pinup girls, Jaja Simone Brown. Thank you, audience, for being an important part of our show. You've had your daily dose. Now go out there and make a difference. You've been tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we collectively move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Start your morning on a high note and join us every weekday, 9 a.m. Pacific time for the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Bye. Remember those numbers, Rico, 27 to 11. <laughs> 27 to 11. <laughs> to 11. Never forget numbers. Hey, what are you still doing here? The show's over. You just don't want to leave, do you? I know. We love you too. Help us grow by grabbing some of our merch. We've got hats, bags, hoodies, water bottles, all the standards. It would really mean a lot. Go to justsaycare.org backslash shop today. Really, I mean it. Today, with the supply chain issues, you might get it by Christmas. The good news is that inflation will be so bad, you'll be locked into a low, low price. Remember, justsaycare.org. Thanks. Okay, go listen to another podcast. Bye.